Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, hey, good morning or good afternoon. Scott Luton, Kelly Barner with you here right on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to the latest episode, Kelly, of Dow P for Procurement. Kelly, how are you doing? I know. I am doing great. Thank you, Scott. And thank you, everybody that's joined us. We're always happy when it's the third Tuesday of the month at noon Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> we really are. And of course, we are delighted to partner with our friends at Buyer's Meeting Point yes. to produce the Dial P programming. Hey, really quick aside, some folks may not make the connection between where the Dial P for procurement name comes <gasps> from. Kelly, got to fill them in. Oh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So, I'm a movie buff, but more classic movie buff than a new movie buff. And Alfred Hitchcock is one of my favorites. So Dial M for Murder is one of the movies. I don't even know why, Scott, you and Greg White and I were discussing Alfred Hitchcock movies. It's not in supply chain. But Greg just joking around and said, hey, we should do Dial P for procurement. And I said, stop. That's it. I won't even entertain other ideas. And it's worked out branding. It's super catchy. There's a really cute little emoji that we use. So that's where the dial P comes from. I'd say there's lots of transferable themes taking place between Alfred Hitchcock movies and global supply chain here in recent <laughs> months. But nevertheless, it's all about great conversations, great yes. thought leadership, and real content. And we've got all of that and more in today's episode. So Kelly, we're going to say hello to a few folks here momentarily, but you know, Tons of tough times over the last, you know, 18 points or so. You know, certainly we're all fighting through it, but it really, uh, it makes us get very grateful and become very grateful of the, the strong relationships yes. we have, both in and out of industry. we got to keep on going and, work and find new ways of working together. So, Kelly, what else would you add to that? You know, I would add to that that we certainly learned over the last 18 months or so that nobody can succeed alone. Right. And whether you think of yourself as being in a supply chain or part of a supply ecosystem, we've seen the good, we've seen the bad, we've seen everything in between. But now we're getting enough back to normal that we're starting to see some consequences. Interestingly, one thing people don't think of, consequences are not necessarily punishments. Consequences are just outcomes. And we've seen some great success stories and we've seen some definitely not so great stories, but that we can all learn from regardless. So it's been a great opportunity for learning. And that's been one of our eureka moments. We got to learn and apply, yes. learn and apply, no band-aids. So with that said, we're going to be introducing our guests here in just a second. I want to say hello to a few folks, Kelly, folks that have tuned in and have begun commenting already. Lee Hoffweber. Lee, hope this finds you well. He says he's in a meeting. He's going to be on <laughs> silent. So Lee, we're going to miss your contributions. You've got some great ones in these recent live streams. Zalilam, I believe, and I, if I got that wrong, I apologize. Send me a note. He's joined via LinkedIn. would love to know where you're dialed in from, uh, Zalilam. Great to have you here today. Of course, memory's back with us. Hey, twice in one week. Memory. Welcome, welcome, welcome. That was an Oprah moment. That was probably, uh, as you were describing, the genesis of the name, Kelly's mm -hmm. My Hunch. Big show, Bob Boba. Oh, yes. Please, everybody share your favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies. <laughs> we should do a session on that sometime. Amen. Yeah. Uh, so clearly, he's a fan of Vertigo, which I have not seen that movie. But uh, great to have you here with us via link, uh, via Facebook, Bob. I hope this finds you well. And Francois. I tell you, Kelly, Francois, it's been a little while since we last connected. But there's a reason for that, because he's been creating some great content via podcasts and live streams in his own neck of the woods. So great to have you back uh, with us here today. And agreed, these relationships can often mm -hmm. be overlooked, especially businesses of all sides, and especially those businesses that are growing. But that's one of the proven fuels for growth, right, Kelly, is great Absolutely. supplier relationships. Okay, finally, Lee reminds us, Tuned in from Houston, Texas, the uh, a, a proud Houstonian. I think what they call folks from Houston, I believe, Kelly. We'll, we'll, we'll find that out as we move ourselves through the conversation here today. So let's do this. And it looks like we had some other. Jeanette, 
who Rear Window, I guess, is her favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. Rear, I had not seen that one either, Kelly. Oh, you are seriously missing out. Um, I'm forgetting his name in real life, but the guy who played Perry Mason is the bad guy. Grace Kelly, who's gorgeous. Jimmy Stewart is amazing and awkward and funny. That's your required assignment for this weekend, Scott. Sit the kids down. This is a family thing. Sit everybody down. Watch Rear Window. Excellent, excellent. I knew I was right in picking you, Jeanette. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like our team, of course, <gasps> likes the classic Psycho. And Bob Bova reminds us that was Raymond Burr. Thank you, Raymond Burr. That's right. On the money. We can always count on the folks <laughs> in the cheap seats. Okay. Well, uh, folks, we're really excited, kidding aside, for this esteemed panel we've got here today. Um, we're really looking forward to learning from this trio of leaders. And, and I want to introduce them, and then we'll swoosh all three in at the same time. Uh, first, we have Laura Chenault, uh, Senior Vice President of Strategic Sourcing and Procurement at Georgia Pacific. Uh, Jeanette Nodden, a contracts expert, but also an author of the book, The Contract Professionals Playbook, Getting to We. The Vested Outsourcing Manual and Negotiation Rules. So she's been really busy publishing a variety of, uh, of books and resources. And then finally, Kurt Albertson, Principal in the Procurement Advisory Practice and North American Lead at the Hackett Group. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Great to have you here, Lori, Jeanette, and Kurt. Thank you. Thank so, you. You bet. And, and you know, Lori, I want to start with you as we kind of uh, warm things up really, really quick. You know, you and Kurt and I and, and many of our team members here behind the scenes call Atlanta home. And, you know, what a great place not only to live, but to do business in. Of course, home of the hard-charging Atlanta Hawks, you know, fresh off the, the heels of an incredible victory last night. But, Lori, I want to ask you, and then I'm going to come to Kurt, uh, what's your, one of your favorite parts about living in a, in a city like Atlanta? Oh, there's so many great things about Atlanta. But I, I would have to say being a foodie, one of the favorite parts of Atlanta are just the number of restaurants and the diversity in restaurants. I think you can find um, any flavor of the world here in Atlanta. So that that's exciting for me. We, you know, my family, we try to eat somewhere different every week. And I think that's possible for an entire year here. <laughs> I agree with you. Well, we used to live in town um, and not too far from, from Buford Highway, which really offers an eclectic mix of different restaurants. Um, and, you know, th these times have been tough on our restauranters. So it's it's really in, in service industry. So I love how you kind of that, that's a weekly goal for you and your family, Lori. And we all need to make sure we try to work hard to support uh, folks in the restaurant industry. And, Lori, you've been here, gosh, for almost 25 years. Is that right? That's right. I moved right at in the Olympics. Love that. That was a special time for the city. Really kind of started a new chapter uh, for the city of Atlanta. So, um, so much has happened since. Well, That's great, right. to great to have you here, Lori. We're going to be diving into the conversation momentarily. But we also have a, a fellow second Atlantan on this panel. Kurt, good afternoon. How you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me. How you doing? Hey, we're doing great. It has been a, it's Tuesday, but it can feel like Thursday. We've it's been a very productive week. But Kurt, uh, tell us the you know, same question to you. What do you love about living and working in the Atlanta area? Well, I think Lori took the one that anybody from Atlanta is going to mention. You know, straight off the bat, the food. So Piedmont Park. I mean, you got to love Piedmont Park. You know, those of you who uh, uh, hail from New York, you know, you, you certainly have you know a big park up there. But you know, I'll. I'll put my money on Piedmont Park, you know, a huge park right in the middle of the city. A lot of people get together. You can take the dog, you can take the family, go for a picnic. There's a lot of food surrounding the park as well. So for my dollar, I'm going to go with Piedmont Park. That's an excellent answer. And, you know, uh, Atlanta, throughout the metro Atlanta area, there's a ton of parks. I, don't, I think maybe Atlanta doesn't always get its due when, when folks talk about that element of living in and working throughout um, the city of Atlanta metro area. So great to have you here, Kurt. And any, I tell you, I'm going to put you on the spot before I move over to Jeanette. Any prediction on the, the Hawks? I don't know if you've been walking, watching that series like we have. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, with Trey Young out leading them, I think this is going to be the year that they uh, surprise a lot of folks and uh, we get back in to uh, finish up some unfinished business this year. Love it. And Laurie, you're nodding your head. Is that a two thumbs up too? 
two thumbs up. Go Hawks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. Hey, I tell you it's, it's really energizing. You know, um, I got to tell you, I, had, I hadn't been following the Hawks. It's been a few years since the Al Horford days and Jeff mm-hmm. Teague. And it is really cool to see this team and this, the, the leadership around it uh, and just the energy. So we'll see what happens from here. The Sixers are no joke. Tough team. Okay. So, Jeanette, good afternoon or good morning for you. Great to have you here. Hello. Now you're, Jeanette, you're dialed in from the beautiful city of Seattle, right? Yes, Seattle, Washington. Okay. So, but before we ask you your favorite part about living and working in that area, which I bet is just a wonderful place to, to, to be, you had a little trivia you offered prior to us going live. So, do share if you if, if it's Oh, okay. I'm so proud of this trivia. <laughs> Yesterday was my first eight-hour day in my office since March 11th, 2020. On March 12th, 2020, I got a call around noon from the Seattle Public School District. Please come get my daughter and all her stuff because school was closing. (laughs) We had no idea. And I've been working from my dining room mostly. I mean, I do come into the office, but yesterday, eight hours, super thrilled. Well, congrats. Those are um, those milestones, especially here as we uh, fight across the states and really across the globe to get into truly this post-pandemic environment. That's a, that's a great story to hear. So add to it, and I promise, Kelly, we'll get to work here momentarily. I love, I love hearing these, <laughs> these warm-up questions and answers. But Jeanette, tell us, what's your favorite part about living and working in Seattle? Oh, I'm just a couple minutes away from all kinds of wilderness areas. Yeah, literally. So we've got the Cascades, we've got the Olympics, we've got Puget Sound. I'm not that far from the Canadian border, the Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, Mount Hood, Mount St. Helen. And I'm an outdoor gal, backpacking, kayaking, riding my road bike. So I can pretty much choose to go anywhere at any time, and the rain does not phase me or my family. So we are very happy with just how much public, open, green space we have in this state. Love it. Okay, you paint a beautiful picture. Um, all right. So I want to say hello to a couple of quick folks, and then I'm turning over to you, Kelly. So, Nanda, great to have you back. Uh, tuned in from Norway. I uh, look forward to your uh, contributions here today. And, of course, Mohib, uh, OAA is tuned in via Wichita, the air capital of the country. And Mohib, great to have you here. Look forward to hearing your POV today as well. Okay, so Kelly, quite a panel here today. Where are we getting started? So we're getting started and I'm going to give a heads up to everybody listening in the audience. We're going to break our conversation today into two parts. We're going to start by talking about the challenging times that we've just been through, but all kinds of challenging times, not just pandemic. Anybody in procurement supply chain knows there's tons of challenge opportunities, right, for us to learn from. And then we're going to actually move on and deal with what we learn in those times and what we can put into practice. So, Lori, as we start to get to know a little bit more about the role that everyone holds professionally, most people, I'm sure, are familiar with Georgia Pacific as being one of the world's largest manufacturers of pulp and paper, but that's super high level. So, um, can you share some specific examples of the products that people might be familiar with so they can sort of think this through in the context of their own world as we discuss? Oh, sure, sure. So, a little background about GP. Um, first of all, we have nearly 30,000 team members across the U.S. in nearly 150 locations. So as you can see, we have quite a large organization here. GP is wholly owned by Coke Industries, which is based in Wichita. So I, we have a friend on the phone from Wichita. <laughs> so there's a there's my Wichita connection for the day. But Love that. G, yeah, GP... Um, really operates in three primary business segments, okay? We have a consumer products group, a building products group, and then a cellulose and packaging group. Um, Consumer products is a branded uh, towel, tissue, and napkin business that we have uh, go to market in two ways. One is the at-home business where hopefully everyone is using our products. We sell Dixie paper plates, Vanity Fair napkins, um, Quilted Northern is another one of our brands along with Angel Soft and Brawny. Um, so, so hopefully those are implanted in your brain now. And, you, and when you visit the grocery <laughs> store, you, you guys will find those brands. Then if you think about uh, the other arm of consumer products, it's more of the professional line or the what we think of as away from home, GP Pro. And those um, products are found in um, more of our public arena. So think about office spaces, restaurants, or even the airport. A popular brand you'll see is in motion where we have the touchless dispensers. Oh, yeah. 
really big into hygiene. You, you probably don't notice, but, you know, if you think about the pandemic and what's grown over the past years, mm-hmm. hygiene and sanitation. So big names there. And then we have building products is just kind of represents its name. It's, it's in the building industry. And then cellulose and packaging, where I believe we've probably touched every American's home during the pandemic. Um, everyone went to online shopping. I, I believe someone, uh, <laughs> everybody had something delivered during the oh, pandemic. Yes. And so the brown corrugated boxes um, is, is primarily what that, that business is known for. So lots of partnerships with Amazon and so forth. And then there's another small piece of the business that people don't know, but we do have a big recyc- recycling arm. So. so across those, I think anybody could open their kitchen cabinet, go to the supply room at the office, and at least one of those products is going to appear in every single attendee's situation. I hope so. I <laughs> hope there's, there's a way we can find ourselves into your home. <laughs> All right. And Jeanette, so you come to us from a little bit of a different background. You're a contract negotiation expert. How did you become a contract negotiation expert? So I'm an attorney by training and I've been licensed for 30 years. And about uh, 20 years ago, I had a client who said to me sort of offhandedly, well, if you could teach my sales team to negotiate the deal you just negotiated for us, you know, I'd, I'd be willing to pay you for that. But as an attorney, we typically don't train in that way. I worked at a law firm, and uh, so that was that was a lovely comment. But boy, did it bite me hard! And I just thought, oh, you know, I could start working with people and teaching them how to negotiate agreements and work with contract terms and four books and you know, 19 something months, 19 years and some months later, here I am. And it's, I am such a nerd. It is my complete and utter passion to teach contract terms and how it's a system and how it works together and how if you make one change here, it can change other parts of the contract or relationship in other places. So it's never a boring day for me if I get to talk to someone about a contract. And that's good to hear. And so if Scott's homework for this weekend is to go watch Rear Window, thank you for bringing that up, Jeanette. Everybody else's homework, if you have not already, go get at least one of the books from the Vested Vested Outsourcing series. They will completely change your thought process about today's topic. Absolutely. Absolutely. A huge shout out to Kate Fantastic because she's an amazing thought leader in this area as well. So then finally, Kurt, you're our special surprise guest for today. How long have you been at Hackett and where specifically is your role focused? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've actually been at Hackett for 16 years, believe it or not, which is, I still can't believe it. Uh, Every day I'm like, wow, has it really been that long? 16 years. I probably need to go do something else. But, (laughs) you know, at this pace, I'll probably be here and finish out my career here. So my role is uh, working with Global 1000 type organizations and their procurement leadership and, and helping them as they transform that function. So I spent a lot of time in normal times on site working with our clients to kind of talk to them about best practices and help them achieve what we call world-class performance. The Hackett Group is very well known for its benchmarking of, of functions like procurement. And then taking a very uh, empirical view of the world and, and, and kind of identifying which of those practices, whether they be technology or process improvement, talent, what have you, actually correlate with world class. Now, I originally started up in Detroit in an automotive plant as an engineer. So I love the data approach that the Hackett Group takes. So I use our best practices, our data, our information, our frameworks to help drive transformation within our clients. Love that. All right. So Kelly, I know we're going to be making a shift here in just a Mm -hmm. minute. And and first off, thanks, Lori, Jeanette, and Kurt for kind of setting the table a bit. But before Kelly, you take it in a different direction. I want to share a couple of comments here. So Carmen is with us via South Africa. Welcome, Carmen. Look forward to your POV here today. Mohib says, air capital of the world, Wichita, of course. Most newborn (laughs) aircraft spread their wings for the first time from our runways. How about that? Uh, I love that. And then Peter Bolay, of course, is back with us. Hello, (laughs) Dow Peers. Woohoo here. Finally. All right. Welcome, Peter. So, Kelly, where are we headed next? All right. So, next, we're going to actually talk about challenging times. 
So, Lori, let me start with you. And again, just joking, huge stretch of the imagination. Just try to think back to maybe some challenging times. When you and your team are facing difficulties, how do you know that you are in a situation where it's appropriate to reach out and try to address or understand a challenge jointly with suppliers? Yeah, so that that is an interesting question. First, let me just start by saying, being in procurement, you have challenges every day. We are lucky enough that I tell people we sit right in the middle of the supply chain, right? We're servicing our, our business partners on our commercial side that are servicing our customers, and then we're servicing our manufacturing side or our operations that are servicing our business side. So, so we are actually lucky enough to be faced with, uh, and I say lucky because challenges are just opportunities. Yes. That, that's all challenges are. You know, we, we look at them as opportunities to learn and to grow. And so you asked, how do we know when to engage a supplier when we have a challenge? And I'll tell you, there, there are a couple things. Um, first, we approach every opportunity with humility and transparency and recognizing that diversity and thought helps solve problems. So we, we find it pretty insightful and powerful to connect with our suppliers to solve problems. You know, we, we um, invest quite a bit of time of building those preferred partners that enable a relationship to create innovation, uh, collaboration, so that we build this, this mutual beneficial relationship. And so when you approach a, a, a relationship with a supplier as this should be mutually beneficial and we want to solve problems together, it should be a win-win for both. And it makes the, the problem solving a lot easier. Absolutely. Now, when you think about those suppliers, to a certain extent, your circumstances are going to dictate who it is that you reach out to. Because when you're looking at a problem, there are going to be specific suppliers that can potentially help address it or problems in a specific supply chain that invoke certain suppliers. But when you think about being able to establish trust and working based on relationship, are there ways that you either formally or informally figure out if there's going to be a cultural, a collaborative, the right type of relationship that exists between your team and that supplier so that the trust and the creativity can both flourish? Yeah, well, I, I tell you, we, like I said, we we really um, pride ourselves on being a very humble organization, yeah. right? And Look, we, we use MBM, which is market-based management, and, and we have some guiding principles, and, and that's anchored by integrity and humility. And we believe we, we interact all the time using those. And we look for suppliers that value the same thing. Um, we look for suppliers that are willing to engage from a same risk perspective with us. Um, we look for suppliers that are looking for something mutually beneficial, um, relationships should not be just one-sided. And to, to maximize the value and to create value, again, we look for those partnerships of saying, hey, how do we contribute to each other with the ultimate goal of creating more value for society, right? Yeah. So uh, the reason we have problems is because there is an opportunity, right? There was a need that was not met. And so how do we find the right supplier to partner with to to approach that need or to fill that void. Absolutely. Now, Jeanette, coming to you, when we think about these needs or these voids that naturally are going to exist in business because things don't stay the same, one of the challenges that I think a lot of procurement professionals face is this notion that the job of a contract is to specifically predict everything that could possibly go wrong. And then right next to it, it says what you're supposed to do when that thing goes wrong. And that's not realistic. What wait, advice? Wait, wait a second, Kelly. That's not how it works. <laughs> Am I breaking news? Wait. Really? This... It's it's because I've read all the vested books. I'm I'm playing a little bit of inside ball here with all of my my vested contract knowledge. <laughs> how do you have conversations with procurement teams to help them put contracts in place that do the right things without trying to say, you know, on a Tuesday at 3 p.m., a water main is going to break in New Jersey, and when that happens, you will do the following. How do you balance the need for specificity with the need to keep things overarching? So um, staying with the vested philosophy, which mm -hmm. my books, you know, definitely two are co-written with Kate and, and the 
fourth book, the playbook, is very heavily influenced by outsource, invested outsourcing. It's a flexible framework, right? So you want to devise a contract that's a framework. So it does act as a referee at times. So what does that mean for it to be a flexible framework? So, for example, what's your change modification process, your change orders? How do you do that? How do you do scope changes? How do you do that in a fair way? Yeah. So if you do banded pricing, so you've got the maximum and the minimum pricing and pricing can float within that. Often we think of that's very fair because as prices naturally could increase for raw materials, as long as it's within the band, it can float and it can float down as long as it's within the band. Now when it gets above band or below band, how do you use your scope change mechanisms in order to trigger scope changes that would allow for price increases or price decreases? So the thing of it is, is um, suppliers, and, and I work 60-40, 60% procurement, 40% on the sales side. Suppliers don't often like to give money back, but they're more than happy to do scope changes if prices increase. And so that's part of what I like to do in terms of balancing things out, is look at all the structures that make something very flexible mm-hmm. and agile, and then making sure that the contract have the mechanisms to trigger those mech that uh, flexibility. So I'm a huge one and I, I demand performance, especially if you're a sole supplier. You're a sole supplier, so therefore you must perform. There's no um, free pass or free lunch. However, you also have to make sure that you've got the right corrective action procedures in place, that you understand what your leading indicators for key performance failure could be, so that when you see these uh, key indicators starting to lag and you know it could potentially impact a quarter or two quarters right. down the road, what corrective actions, what recovery plans, recovery schedules can you put into place? Now, the contract has that language. Kelly, I'm going to put you on notice. You now have to create a schedule plan that recovers some of the time. Maybe you manage the float, but I own the float. How are we going to do that? But the contract has the trigger. I notice you, you have X number of days to provide me the recovery plan, but it doesn't dictate how you're going to recover. Just says you will recover and that it will be a mutually agreed recovery plan. So obviously, this is hugely complicated, Kurt. And I know at Hackett Group, you guys, between studies and conversations that you're having with chief procurement officers, very much have your your finger on the pulse of thinking. How does all of this align with what you're hearing from chief procurement officers in terms of what's top of mind for them right now? And maybe how they're addressing some of these complicated situations? Yeah, so... You know, I think the point that has been made, uh, you know, Jeanette called it a framework. You put the mm-hmm. framework in place, right? I think I think uh, Lori used the term trust with suppliers. One of the one of the biggest topics or capabilities, we'll, uh, I'll say, that procurement leaders are really focused on trying to build out, and I'll come back to that statement in a second here, is really this supplier relationship management approach, right? How do we how do we create value throughout the life cycle of working? with these you know critical suppliers that we have the ones that can really help us move the needle on on the outcomes we're trying to drive and so we're spending a lot of time with our clients on this srm kind of framework and approach unfortunately when you look at the data of all the studies we did the number one capability that is the most immature at most organizations is supplier relationship management right so to the point that that's been made organizations aren't good at this, right? I mean, they're just yeah. not good at it for various reasons. And a lot of it is, you know, it's it's not like the strategic sourcing process. Like you put in place a contract, I drove savings, you know, ring the gong, okay? You can see the number <laughs> I drove. SRM takes a lot more effort. You know, it's, it's called yeah. supplier relationship management for a reason. That relationship piece, just like our, just like our children, our spouses, our friends, relationships. If you want to get something out of a relationship, you have to make the investment and put that time in. And back to something that Lori said around trust, you know, I facilitated a lot of discussions that look something like this. Procurement leaders are in the room. The key category managers for their most strategic categories are in the room. And senior executives for some of their key suppliers are in the room. And 
that it's it's you can tell that there is zero trust between mm-hmm. the supplier and the procurement team in terms because the supplier leadership just will not open up. You have to coax, you know, that out of them because they're fearful. They're fearful that if they say something, it's going to be interpreted in the wrong way, or they really try to just say things that they know their category manager or procurement leadership wants to hear. So SRM, it's it's one of those key drivers that we see that can deliver tremendous value, whether we're talking about cost reduction, improvements, risk management. We did see this year supplier relationship management was one of the key capabilities that procurement really looked to to kind of manage through a lot of the supply continuity risk they were they were uh, they were they were finding themselves focused on but unfortunately SRM is the least mature capability for a lot of procurement teams yeah Kelly may I make a comment on that of course Lori yes sorry about that but uh, no. I, I think you raise a, a few good points and just some thoughts on how we've approached that in our organization, because we, we've actually been going through our own transformation as a sourcing mm-hmm. and procurement capability. And while we have worked on relationships, we've emphasized more of building preferred partnerships. Mm-hmm. And we believe preferred partnerships should be built on transparency, humility, collaboration, right, and, and integrity. And so we really aspire to create those preferred partnerships that are built on that, that allow the open collaboration and the two-way feedback to create that mutual benefit. So I think that's important not to lose when you talk about the supplier relationships yeah. as we are really focused on the mutual benefit and the virtual cycles of continuous learning and, and mutual benefit. So really focus on that preferred partner transparency. I think that's absolutely critical to build in trust. And there's an element of humility um, that I think both sides have to come to the table with to recognize if there's going to be a partnership, there are things that each of us are good at and bring to the table. And and how do we work together in the partnership, right, to leverage what each of us are bringing to the table? As the consumer from the supplier, I have to recognize that I'm trying to help them lower their cost to serve. If I can help them lower their cost to serve, Mm -hmm. my cost of ownership should get better. That's Absolutely. a win-win for both of us, right? And if, if we focus on finding what's common to create value, to create that win-win, I think that helps build these relationships or partnerships, as we like to call them, right? And it's not just with suppliers. We focus on that with our internal customers, yeah. with our employees, with our external customers. It's, it's really finding that common ground of, of mutual benefit. I love that. And in fact, I love what a lot of what Lori shared, Kurt shared, and Jeanette. It's like getting new groceries and putting them all in the in the cupboard. And it's like, where do you start with the next meal? Yeah. But transparency and humility, Lori, I'd love to shout that from the mountaintops. That yeah. that really those are some of the the wonderful fertilizer for really establishing and growing that those preferred partnerships you're talking about. Uh, Kelly, I want to share a couple of co- quick comments. Grab a couple here. So memory, kind of going back. She says, "Toughest challenge since COVID started started is building new Excellent relationships point. with suppliers when companies downsized. You have to be able to build relationships quickly and broaden your contacts with suppliers so it's not dependent on just a few contacts." Excellent point there, memory. And then Peter. Peter, uh, this is a this is a common theme. Relationship matters, matter. Peter, I appreciate you bringing that for each of these conversations here today. Uh, let's see here. Memory also says value, price, cost, framework, scales were flipped upside down. And then finally, Charles Heater says that's key, Lori. Mutual benefit. Each party understanding how the relationship bolsters the other's value. Love that, Charles. Great to have you here. Okay, so Kelly, so much. So little time, so much to talk about. I know. Where are we going next? <laughs> so I'm going to really quick, Jeanette and Kurt, hit each of you with a quick question, just because I think Lori added some really interesting things for us to think about just then. Jeanette, starting with you, we're talking about the importance of relationships. Is an intent to form a relationship or the basis for relationship something you overtly write into a contract or is it something it is that is implied in the way a contract is written, negotiated, and enforced? Oh, no, it's not implied. When we write contracts, there isn't an implied, quote-unquote, relationship. It's the structure for how the two parties are going to work together. It creates the obligations that each party owes the other party. Um, 
in order to actually have the intention for the relationship, you do need to have a statement of objectives and you do need to sit down. And I have facilitated these conversations with Kate Vitasek and through the vested process where we actually bring the procurement side, the line of business sales uh, for the supplier and their line of business support and bring it into the room together and really determine what the ground rules are going to be for that relationship what the mission and vision for that relationship will be. Um, we have a great tool called the Cat Compatibility and Trust Survey, CAT, which my book, Getting To We, has some examples and charts that we have pulled anonymously from our work so that you can really see how we can build that relationship. That That's a human thing. That's not a contract thing. That's a human thing. And you do it by coming together and agreeing that this is how we're going to work on what our principles are, applying the guiding principles. The contract is the last thing you do where you need to document um, obligations mm -hmm. to one another because you may not be around to remember what was negotiated. So someone else has got to be able to pick that up and understand obligations. But uh, no, the contract is not about the yeah. relationship. And it's interesting, Kurt, going back to your comments, you actually mentioned two different things. And, and I'm curious to get your read on this. So you talked about how supplier relationship management is in most cases the least mature area of experience or capability within procurement. But you also mentioned managing uh, supply continuity risk. How would you rank the two of those in terms of maturity and preparedness? Are we stronger on the continuity risk than we are with supplier relationship management? Or are they both areas that we've discovered that we really need to invest a lot more in? Well, um, it's, a good, it's a great question. And I would say the answer to that question looks very different today than it did mm -hmm. probably 18 months ago. And probably the best data point I can give you is, you know, we do a key issue study for procurement leadership every year and supply risk management across all industries. And certainly this depends on the industry or in certainly some industries, this wouldn't be, they, they would probably rank it higher. But in general, supply risk management is never a top, it's, it barely has broken the top 10 with respect to the key priorities of procurement, if you kind of average it out across all the industries. Well, guess where it was for 2021? Number two. <laughs> so it became a critical capability. And, you know, when we were talking with clients over the last, you know, it's, it's changed, but, um, you know, this idea of supply risk management, supply continuity risk, how do we manage that better? is now you know a top two top three priority for procurement leaders and they've been investing a lot of capabilities technology data leveraging supplier relationship management putting in new processes new, new talent uh, new capabilities to better manage it so we've gotten better at it obviously yeah. and unfortunately a lot of folks from talking with our clients it was it was a big gap you know, kind of March, April last year, when when this all kind of went down, um, they realized just how poor they were with respect to that. And I'll give you an example. A lot of companies didn't have a repository for all the key contacts for their suppliers. That's right. They had to run around and call category managers, look through the contracts to really kind of get a, a you know, to kind of pull all that information together. They started pulling together databases. And, but they were successfully managing through it for the most part, but it required a lot of brute force, a lot of manual effort, mm -hmm. a lot of reaching out to your suppliers to talk to them, to get a perspective of how they were doing, but also how their tier two suppliers were doing with respect to the risks. So again, to answer your question specifically, I would say, you know, we've gotten a lot better over the last 18 months with respect to supply continuity risk, and we do expect it to be a key focus for the foreseeable future as, as organizations continue to build capabilities. SRM is attached to that. It's a, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a value lever they're using to help support that, but uh, there's a long way to go when it comes to supplier relationship management. Yeah, indeed. So I, um, if I can just interject a couple of quick comments here. So Mohib says supply management, well, supply relationship is not speed dating unless customer relationship is. I love that. Uh, Nanda says contract is the last thing we do. So true, but not frequently followed. No. Many organizations just uh -huh. jump into contract negotiations at the first 
instant. Excellent point there. Scott, and if I can, if yeah, I can please. add on to what Nanda said, um, it's not just many organizations. I actually find most organizations, most there's something fearful about wanting to sit down and establish the relationship first. And there's a certain sense of comfort in going into the terms and conditions. And then the way we do terms and conditions is just completely start at the top with the wherefore, whereas, go into the definitions. And, you know, of course, Article 33 is your limitations of liability. And that's, you know, the biggest contention for the law department. And the whole thing is just wonky in my perspective. Excellent point. Yeah, one other thing to, to, to that, Jeanette, is if you think about the supplier relationship, it really starts at the time of that RFP. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, when, when, you, when you put an RFP out in the market, you have to approach it with transparency and willing to share with the suppliers that are coming to the table to bid. And that's where the relationship starts and to the point that the contract is at the end. The relationship or the dating starts during the RFP. And so, so you know those kind of first impressions? Yes. Um, that it's when you when you uh, start to meet someone new or, or start a relationship. So I think it's important to think about that relationship um, and your needs up front at the RFP, right? When you're putting the proposal out in the market and you're showing people who you are and how you want to conduct business and your, your willingness to be open and transparent kind of set the tone of your expectations of how you want the relationship to be as well. Excellent point there, Laurie. Kelly, if I could just interject one quick thing. And, and again, folks, Kelly is the smart one between the two of us. Um, I want to ask kind of a dumb question, but I think it's an important question because I think the pandemic has taught us many things and it's taught pen- practitioners many things and it's taught consumers or non-practitioners many things as well. I think one of the things perhaps that, that folks maybe not involved in supply chain have learned through the pandemic is finding good quality suppliers is extremely difficult. And, yes. and I can tell you from my time in manufacturing, when we were, we were in metal stamping, uh, where I learned a ton from a lot of smart people, you know, finding this weldman or this supplier, this, this, that, the other, it was really a challenge. And, and that's where a lot of the expertise uh, when it comes to the procurement sourcing world comes into play. But really quick, if I could just take a quick pulse check, a really quick short answer is uh, finding new suppliers, is it as appreciated as it should be? And Laura, let's start with you really quick. Is it underappreciated or overappreciated? It's underappreciated. I'm with you. Uh, Kurt? Uh, I would say it's underappreciated in in a lot of key areas. Yeah, great point. Jeanette? Scott, your question is about finding new suppliers. Yeah, how do we underappreciate just how tough it is? Oh, how tough it is. I missed that. Oh, way underappreciated, especially when you think about negotiating contracts, right? What are a lot of people's best alternative to a negotiated agreement? We'll just go to somebody else. Right. All right. Easier said than done. Uh, especially, uh, especially as you get you know into the first few months uh, after the ink is dried and and then the performance has to take place. But Kelly, sorry, I didn't mean to no. um, take well, us Scott, wrong, down the other path. Can I just add one point to that? You know, particular, particularly, you know, the other the other key area right right now is 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 you know diversity of your supply base, right? So, you know, talking about this idea of finding you know, good suppliers, you know, that that is a key area right now. This is a huge area for Hackett. It's been, I started our first study in this space some 15 years ago, but this topic has exploded over the last 15 months. And there is a big focus on that topic or that question. You know, how do we find, you know, those those really good suppliers, particularly in the supplier diversity space? Thank you um, for that. It's a big area of focus. That's awesome. It sounds like y'all were uh, trailblazers in this regard. So, uh, Kelly, uh, where are we going next? Actually, at this point, I think, Scott, you're going to take us through with each of our guests, kind of having a look at, so despite all your best efforts and hopefully your careful speed dating and your good selection of suppliers and your excellent establishment of a contract, something has gone wrong, right? Yes. And hopefully everybody has learned something from it. So do you want to take everybody through and and let's see about what we can learn that we can share with the audience that they can implement going forward? Thank you, my trusted captain. Uh, That is exactly (laughs) where we are. So Lori, on that note, things things are going to break. Things are going to go wrong. Kelly used the the water main leak up in New Jersey. Uh, There's thousands and thousands. When in doubt, blame New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but Laurie, if you could talk about um, kind of what that, you know, the review, you know, that postmortem, what does that look like uh, with you and your team? And then how can you ensure that, um, you know, actions taken to address the root causes and, and to make sure it doesn't come back to bite us again? Yeah, um, good question. So here, here's the tough part, right, of, of not being emotional when you have a problem, right? Because problems are, again, our opportunities are created because there was a void. And, and oftentimes in the supply chain, there's pressure to resolve something quickly. Mm. And so, so the, the first uh, rule of thumb is let's not all be emotional here. Um, the second thing is when you try uh, working to solve a problem, is the end in mind is to prevent the problem from happening again. So as, as we approach the kind of the postmortem or the RCA, approach it with the goal of, hey, what are we going to do to prevent this from occurring again? So that's kind of our first rule of thumb. The second thing you'll hear me say again is with transparency and humility. Everybody come to the table with, hey, where, where did we go wrong? What happened? And it's not necessarily to blame or point fingers, but again, like, let's prevent this from happening again. So we keep the dialogue and the open communication, proactively make a list during the conversation of key action items that we want to follow up on. Then again, if you if you built that preferred partnership and everybody is recognizing this is for mutual benefit and, and longer term value, not just this one incident, we work together to prevent things from happening again. So that, that's been our approach of mutual benefit, humility, forward-looking, long-term relationship, and long-term value. Excellent point. And, and to borrow this phrase, due diligence, that memory is, is put in the comments there. I think, Excellent uh, point. and Lori, I'd, I'd love mm-hmm. for you to, to weigh in one quick follow-up here, is once, once you encounter the problem and you're working with your suppliers to address it, um, can that oftentimes show that you've done your due diligence uh, upstream before the problem and you chose the right preferred partner? Oh, it can. It, de- it depends. But I think there's a, a element of humility, too, of saying, where did it go wrong? And is that something that we did? Were we not clear, right? Because a lot of times there's a miscommunication. Mm. Um, if you think about supplier things that go wrong is, were we not clear with the ask or the buy? Right. And, and up front, are, are we crystal clear if we think about due diligence? But and, and then on their side, have they done enough to ask to ensure that they're crystal clear in our ask? But so I think there's some communication and some due diligence as well as, hey, as 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 the company here that's making the buy, let's be crystal clear in what it is we want to go buy and our expectations around the services that we're buying. Love that. And that tees us up for our next question I'm going to pose to Jeanette, because one of the great uh, places in all of this where we can be crystal clear is the contract. So Jeanette, I want to ask you, you know, should the contract be revisited in the aftermath of a, of a snafu or an unexpected problem or any problem? Or does oh. a successful... Uh, so, so, so should it be revisited or does a successful outcome indicate that the tron- contract did its job? So Jeanette, what's your take there? Okay, so a contract is a life cycle and it's a continuous life cycle. So just because you get to the end of a term doesn't mean that you're done. It means that it triggers another cycle for procurement, which could change what's being procured or how it's being procured. But contracts are not evergreen forever. They could be long term. So they must be in an ever increasing cycle of renewal which means that there's plenty of opportunities to revisit opportunities, challenges, but also to incorporate lessons learned. When when there's a problem, that's typically when we pay attention, right? We do the root cause analysis. We look at the lessons learned. Typically, I'm brought in as an outside expert to sort of figure it all out. What I think companies tend not to do is celebrate the success by also doing a root cause analysis, We tend to pat ourselves on the back, have the virtual champagne. This relationship was fantastic. Let's go at this again for another five years. And then the next five years are not as successful as the first five years because we never did the root cause of that success. So 
I would say because it's a contract life cycle, pre-award, award, post-award, and then it goes right back into pre-award phase again, we've got to consistently understand what's successful and also what our challenges are. Well said. And Jeanette, I love that digital champagne that you speak about because, <laughs> it, you know, let's face it, we, we do, yeah. um, it's, we do uh, pat ourselves on the back when, when a, this fire, regardless of size, has been put out. And it's really important to make sure that that's not the cultural driver, right? Otherwise, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll continue to manage by firefighting. So I, I love your comments there, Jeanette. I want to share a couple of comments. And Kurt, I'm coming to you with, with uh, our, one of our last questions of the segment. Memory says, hey, most contracts collect dust in filing. They come out of hibernation when a crisis pops up. Excellent point. Mm -hmm. See, Charles says, Kelly, when something goes wrong is when we get busy and help that supplier get back within the lines. In his opinion, it's yeah. not all on them. It's on us. You are Excellent. so right, Charles. Excellent mm -hmm. point, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And Peter, I can't do your analogy justice here, <laughs> but he's talking about the layers, the layers uh, across the supply chain, and he's using a Shrek comparison, but I love that, Peter. I think he wanted parfait, Peter, just to demonstrate <laughs> some of my newer movie knowledge. Donkey wanted parfait, Shrek insisted oh. on onions, so. <laughs> love that. All right. So, Kurt, I'm going to come to you here as we start to wrap up. As much as I hated uh, this segment, I've learned a ton from uh, hearing each of y'all speak on your expertise and your experience. But so how successful have companies been mm -hmm. at truly partnering with their strategic suppliers to solve business issues and concerns? What's going on, Kurt? Well, unfortunately, here's here's the big problem, right? And A, I think, I think both Lori and Jeanette said some really good things, you know, specifically around, you know, there has to be, it's not all on the supplier, right? If we really want to solve problems, if we really want to create value, beyond kind of the initial relationship we put in place, it takes a collaborative effort. And, you know, to be honest, most of the barriers that I've seen are from the buying organization. They're not from the supplier. The supplier, in many cases, is dying to work with you to deliver more value because in the long run, that that benefits them, their relationship. Yeah. They're, you know, they they have a strong relationship. They're much more confident in the business they're going to have with you. the The big issue I've seen, and it goes back to this supplier relationship management approach or framework, just not being very mature, is if you think about the typical category manager, sourcing manager, whatever it is you're calling them. They're really good up until the contract. Well, and Jeanette might argue, but they're they're generally they they focus on getting the contract done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What they're not good at, because a lot of these you know these collaborations with your suppliers are very complex and require a lot of navigation throughout the entire enterprise to really to really any to make any any progress. Right, so you might have to pull in R and D. You might have to work with engineering. You might have to work with your operational team. And to be honest, that's a very complex. Now we're procurement resources. Now we're working across processes and organizations that we don't necessarily have formal relationships or interfaces with. And without a formal SRM approach and framework, that's very difficult to do. So in most cases, a supplier, for example, might have a very good solution or opportunity for you. But we just don't have the mechanism to kind of take that idea and implement it within a complex organization. And that's often where I see, you know, some big gaps. I would completely agree. All right. Well, we got to start to wrap things up. But Kelly, before I toss it back to you for for um, our, maybe your final thought, and we'll make sure folks, of course, know how to connect with our esteemed panel here. I do want to share uh, Peter Bolay's comment. He says, Lori equals a no-nonsense approach to supplier relationship management. <laughs> yeah. Clarity leads the way. And that is, uh, you know, we could all use uh, a, a double dose of clarity here in this environment where we're all leading through. So, Kelly, I want before we, we go around the panel, make sure everyone knows how to connect with this uh, great bunch of leaders here, your final comment, and, and we'll start to wrap. Sure. You know, I think my, my final comment here is that we've been in through an incredibly difficult time, but... Lori, to your point, challenges are opportunities, right? And if we approach this whole situation with humility, if we approach it, Kurt, understanding what the best practices of leading organizations are so that we can take some of those in, and Jeanette, so that we can use contracts and our approach to contracts to try to prevent some of this from going wrong in the future, 
or know what to do when it does go wrong. I think this is the moment, you know, we all keep talking about like, will we ever go back to normal? I think this is the moment where we have to resolve not to. We have to resolve, we're going to learn from what's happened. We're going to change what we need to change and we're going to be better because of it. So everything that we heard today, I think absolutely reinforces that from different perspectives. And I absolutely encourage everybody who's joining us live as well as on demand later, definitely connect with these three because they've brought three completely different but incredibly important voices to this topic. Love that. Very nicely done, Kelly. Wow. I'm take some notes on that one. Have a little bit of practice now. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think the, the, the operative, one of my favorite parts is how they are coming. Uh, all three yes. of our panelists here are coming at, at different levels at this conversation. That's really helpful for kind of a holistic understanding um, um, of, of supply relationships and beyond. So with that being said, Lori Chenault uh, with Georgia Pacific, and, and how, how if folks want to compare notes with you and, or learn more from you, where would you suggest they start? LinkedIn. I am out on LinkedIn as Lori Chenault from Georgia Pacific. Send me a note. DM me. Wonderful. And we look forward. Maybe we can compare food net notes next time. <laughs> That's we right. Live stream together. I love that. Uh, such a pleasure to have you with us here today. Next up, Jeanette Naden. Yeah. Um, gosh, you're publishing a library. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm surprised we got an hour of your time here today. Congrats on all Thank of that. You. But how can folks connect with you? So also on LinkedIn and my website has, because I am publishing a library, lots of free resources, and that's www.jnyden.com. Wonderful. And of course, to our listeners and folks out in the community and cheap seats, I believe we've got everyone's LinkedIn profile or relevant links in the show notes, and they'll certainly be in the replay. So thanks for sharing that, Jeanette. And finally, Kurt Albertson with the Hackett Group. Kurt, great to meet you here today. I've enjoyed your contributions. How can folks connect with you? Yeah, like the others, LinkedIn's probably the best way. Just shoot me a note on LinkedIn, Kurt Albertson, the Hackett Group, uh, or you can go to thehackettgroup.com and submit an inquiry and just ask for me, and it'll eventually route its way there. But probably LinkedIn is the most direct way. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, on behalf of uh, Kelly Barner and I, and of course the whole supply chain, now the Buyer's Meeting Point team, and of course Dial P for Procurement, thank you to all of our wonderful panelists. We hope to see you again real soon. Lori Chenault with Georgia Pacific, Jeanette Niden, author, contracts expert, and of course Kurt Albertson with the Hackett Group. Thanks so much to each of you. Thanks. Thank you. All right, Kelly, man, I'll tell you. Um, we could have gone easily. I say this all the time, but but with that group oh, no. for this topic, could have gone six hours and still be scratching the surface. But uh, I like how you constructed that conversation and 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 the variety of voices. And uh, I learned, you know, I tried really hard, Kelly. I'm gonna I'm gonna I try really hard. I had a ton, <laughs> but it got I got to a point where I couldn't keep up with the conversation and make sure our you know we got comments from the audience. But mm-hmm. so many good takeaways there, Kelly. No, and that was a great combination, right? I mean, it's always fantastic. I'm always grateful when practitioners are willing to share their perspective. They're sort of like one in a million being able to get somebody of Lori's caliber. But goodness, Jeanette is a lawyer. She is the published author and expert on this contract negotiation topic. And then, of course, Kurt bringing in the perspective of industry research and best practices, the analyst sort of look. I feel incredibly lucky that we were able to get the three of them here together to discuss this topic. because I think it shows both how complex it is and what a huge opportunity it is for us to start doing it better. Yeah, no kidding. And of course, Lori leading strategic sourcing and procurement at yes. GP, given given some of the, the different dynamics we've all mm-hmm. experienced here uh, collectively the last year and a half. I'm not envious of, of her leadership role, but yeah. what a great between Jeanette, Kurt, and Lori, uh, wonderful conversation. I got to share a couple of quick comments and then we're going to wrap. Let's see here. Peter says, until he's blue in the face, I have said uh, to vary and diversify yeah. your supplier base for the uh, best total cost ownership to secure your supply chain needs. Excellent point, Peter. He's blue in the face once more. Um, <laughs> let's see. Bohib says, takeaway. Note to self, learn how <laughs> Kelly presents the takeaway notes. Excellent. Ooh, I'll give you a free one, Mohib. Active listening. This is something we should talk about in one of these other sessions. You got to focus on active listening. It's really tough with these guests being so great. Uh, excellent point. Excellent point. Jose, thanks so much for uh, Thank you, your Jose. comments via LinkedIn. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate that, Nanda and, and others. Really appreciate all the comments and perspective we got. Sorry we couldn't get to all the questions presented, but we had a ton to work through with this esteemed panel. So, 
Kelly, with that said, of course, we want to folks uh, encourage folks to connect with our friends at Buyer's Meeting Point. Yes. We want to encourage you to check out Art of Procurement. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the 2021 Supply Chain and Procurement Awards, Kelly, which we're really yes. excited about. Did I miss anything? I don't think that's everything. No. I mean, is this the part where we thank everybody for joining us for yes. Dial H for the Atlanta Hawks? That's sort of the impression I got when we first kicked off the segment. Are we officially dying like H now? Uh, absolutely. I'll tell you, these Hawks, it's just been years since we saw a team fight back and, and be resilient in, in a true resilient manner. We, we got to see what happens. Uh, I think the next game is Thursday night, but it's really neat. You know, sports teams have provided, especially now they're, they're kind of kicking things yes. back off, not only great points of normalcy, but it's also uh, helped bring people together. And I don't want Absolutely. to be cheesy about that, but it really, despite the rivalries, I mean, it really is, it's a unifying element, much like food. And we got a lot of traction oh, for some, some food. We discussion. absolutely do. Atlanta sounds like a great place to go eat. And I'm kind of surprised nobody mentioned that, unless I, I'm wrong, isn't Turner Classic Movies based in Atlanta, Georgia? Um, I think so. Part of the, absolutely. Yeah. That's like Mecca for movies. <laughs> we'll have you We'll have you in town soon. We'll, that we'll, sounds uh, like a plan. We'll go on a food journey as well. But everybody, <laughs> hey, uh, thanks so much for your time here today. Huge thanks to, of course, our panelists. Huge thanks to all the folks that showed up in the cheap seats and for being a part, an active part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Big thanks to the, the Supply Chain Now team behind the scenes, Amanda and Clay and Allie and Natalie and others. Uh, on behalf of our entire team, most importantly, hey, have a wonderful week wherever you are across the globe, but do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right here on Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now.